1: the New Statesman.
2: I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Monday the 1st of May and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, Today, I'm joined by the American linguist and political commentator Noam Chomsky to discuss the war in Ukraine and American foreign policy. Before we start the interview, I'm joined by Katie to contextualize some of Noam Chomsky's remarks.
1: You know, do you just want to talk a little bit about why we decided to do this interview?
2: I guess if you're a sort of regular listener of World Review and you usually mostly agree with our points of view and our perspectives. This will be quite different to what you're used to. We don't, at least I personally don't agree with everything or even most of what Noam Chomsky says in this interview, but it is at the same time important to recognize that the points of view that he puts forward and is one of the most prominent proponents of are widely shared. They are not completely marginal. And these are ideas which do exist. And Noam Chomsky is one of the kind of preeminent people pushing them and advocating them. And it's, even though I don't agree with that much of what Noam tells me in the interview, I do think it's important to speak to people you disagree with and hear points of view you disagree with.
1: Yeah, I would say these are very influential and very widespread views. So it's important to to hear them and it's important that we don't just air the views of people that we agree with. That said, I think the context that I would like to just put ahead of this interview is a few key points. The first is that Noam Chomsky depicts Ukraine as being forbidden by the US to undertake negotiations With Russia, because he says the US wants to keep the war going as long as possible to weaken Russia, there is just no evidence to support that. In fact, you could argue the opposite, that publicly, the line that you always hear from the administration here in in Washington is that support will go on as the fighting will go on as long as Ukraine wants and for as long as it takes. But in private, actually, there are real concerns about how far Ukraine intends to push how long the West can sustain this support and how much this is depleting Western arms supplies. So I think the sort of analytical error is just to not give any agency to Ukraine at all. It's the same mistake that Moscow makes and to present Ukraine as being an unwilling pawn of the United States. Second point he argues that Finland and Sweden have only joined NATO to sell weapons. It's really extraordinary to ignore the timing on, on this and not to see the fact that they rushed to join NATO because Russia had invaded Ukraine. That It's an extraordinarily conspiratorial, and quite a cynical worldview. And again, I just don't think there is evidence to support it. In Taiwan, you hear a very You're going to hear a very one-sided view of what is happening, and you're going to hear a lot of blame on the US actions. What I think Chomsky misses entirely and does not acknowledge is China's actions and how far Beijing has worked to undermine the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. It is Chinese military fighter jets that are flying across the median line on an almost daily basis. And that needs to be part of any explanation of what's happening regarding Taiwan. And just finally, he makes a comparison between Russia's war against Ukraine and the Iraq war. And I would say that we can condemn atrocities in both, as we have done here at the New Statesman. We, we can condemn atrocities. We can condemn political decisions that were made. But just because the US and the UK were part of the invasion of Iraq does not mean that Russia has carte blanche to invade Ukraine, and we should not draw a false equivalence. We should be able to condemn atrocities wherever they happen, and we should be clear that terrible war crimes are happening right now in Ukraine. There have been rapes of children. There has been the systematic targeting of civilian infrastructure. Maternity hospitals have been bombed, prisoners of war. Are reported to have been beheaded. So I think that's the context that I would like to put ahead of this interview and to say I think it is, it's something that is out there that people do is to draw a false equivalency between these conflicts, but we shouldn't lose sight of what is actually happening in Ukraine and we should be clear about condemning it.
2: Yeah, I think that's really well put. I've written up this interview, which is published as a piece, so if you want to read the interview with full context, you can go to the New Statesman website and read this, and we'll put it in the show notes too. But for now, let's hear from Noam Chomsky. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Mr. Chomsky. You've got this fascinating book of interviews just published. It ranges over a period of about a year from 2021 to 2022, obviously a pivotal period in in history of the world, um, particularly because of the invasion of Ukraine. And that's where I want to start. The second chapter is titled, Biden's foreign policy is largely indistinguishable from Trump's. And it's from 2021. And I think maybe one thing that the invasion of Ukraine shows is that I think Biden approached this crisis quite differently to Trump. Do you share that assessment?
3: It's very hard to say because Trump is a loose cannon. You have no idea what his policy was. So one moment he says, we have to work something out with Russia. The next moment he says, we have to keep the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan for a base for attacking Russia. Who knows what his policy is? It's whatever he saw on Fox News this morning. So you can't compare... Biden's policy with Trump's. There's no Trump policy. Biden's policy is pretty clear, very explicit. It's been stated, we must continue the war in order to severely weaken Russia. That's the policy. Same as Britain follows along. So when there were uh, some possibilities of negotiations a year ago, last March, April, both Britain and the United States informed Kiev that they did not regard this as a good time for negotiations, and the U.S. policy continues to be to, as they put it formally, to strengthen Ukraine's position so that it'll be in a better position for negotiations. In other words, no negotiations, no diplomacy. There's no, nobody explains how continuing the war with battering Ukraine is going to put them in a better position. That's just presupposed somehow. You can see the same in the, the international relations literature. So take a look at the last issue of Foreign Affairs, the major international affairs journal article by two leading commentators saying exactly what I just said. I have to continue the war to put Ukraine in a stronger position for eventual negotiations. How that's gonna happen is some miracle unexplained. Meanwhile Ukraine's getting battered, devastated I have to say then every by now even Military commentators are pointing out that for the United States, this is a bargain. For a fraction of the colossal military budget, the United States is able to severely degrade the military forces of its own, its only real military adversary. Whether that's the reason or not, I don't know. You can ask yourself, but those are the facts.
2: Is it wrong for the US to provide weapons to Ukraine so that they can continue the fight as long as they wish and join negotiations when they so decide?
3: I think it's reasonable to provide weapons to Ukraine to defend itself against aggression. But the United States has a position. Is the US going to insist that there be no negotiations so that we can severely weaken Russia. Don't forget, Ukraine is not a free actor in this. They're dependent on what the United States determines.
2: In several of the interviews, you warn of the risk of nuclear war. For instance, you warned that if the US continues delivering weapons to Ukraine, the, it's, I think you said it's easy to foresee a path to escalation that ends with nuclear war. Clearly, over the past year, that's not what we've seen. We've seen weapons continually ramp up. For example, the high Mars systems that the U.S. provided, and most recently, of course, these tank systems. Are you still worried about the risk of
3: nuclear war? Anyone who has a gray cell functioning should be worried about the risk of nuclear war. Uh, that's why the doomsday clock was set to 90 seconds to midnight. There are many possible scenarios that could lead to nuclear war both in Ukraine and also in China, with regard to China. For example, let's imagine that the prognostications of U.S. political leaders are correct. Suppose it turns out that Ukraine can come close to defeating Russia. Is Putin just gonna pack up his bags and say, that was nice, so go home to oblivion, or will he raise the attack against Ukraine? Notice, let me ask you a simple question. When the United States and Britain were smashing Baghdad to pieces, did any foreign leaders go to visit Baghdad? No, because when the US and Britain go to war, they go for the jugular, they destroy everything communication, transportation, energy, shock and awe, anything that makes society function that hasn't happened in Ukraine, undoubtedly, Russia could do it presumably with conventional weapons, could make Kiev as unlivable as Baghdad was, could move into attacking supply lines in Western Ukraine. It'd be a confrontation with NATO. Then what happens? Just another step up the escalation ladder. And once you start on that, nobody knows where it leads. So to, be, to fail to be considered concerned about nuclear war is to be out of your mind. Are you implying that Russia is fighting more
2: humanely than the US and UK were in Iraq? I'm not implying
3: it. It's obvious. Just take what I just asked. Did you remember foreign leaders going to Baghdad? In fact, they had to withdraw everybody, withdraw the UN inspectors, withdraw a peace delegation that was on the ground because the attack was severe and extreme. That's the US-British style of war. Take a look at casualties. All I know is the official numbers. Maybe you know more. So the official UN numbers are about 8,000 civilian casualties. How many civilian casualties were there when the US and Britain attacked Iraq? And that's only one case. How many civilian casualties were there when Israel invaded Lebanon? About 20,000. Ask yourself the question.
2: What kind of a settlement would be acceptable in Ukraine? What kind of final outcome should the Ukrainians, obviously Ukraine's Western backers, push for?
3: The obvious answer is the Minsk agreement, Minsk two, which offered a plausible settlement. It's called for a federal. First of all, Ukraine would not be a member of NATO That's the red line that every Russian leader has insisted on since Yeltsin and Gorbachev. It's well known to U.S. and British analysts and the diplomatic corps, have all been warning Washington for 30 years. Pressing this will be reckless and dangerous. That's nothing new. So point one, Ukraine gains the status of, say, Austria, during the Cold War, or Mexico today. Mexico can't join a hostile military alliance. There's no treaty about it, but it's perfectly obvious. So that's point one. With regard to Donbass, the Minsk Minsk agreements called for a degree of autonomy for Donbass within a Ukrainian federation. So maybe something like Switzerland or Belgium, other federated systems. With regard to Crimea, it says we put it off for the moment. Let it be discussed later. Those are the basic outlines of a solution under the Minsk II agreement, which incidentally is endorsed by the UN Security Council. U.S. and British Britain agreeing. So would Ukraine agree to that? Would Russia agree to that? There's only one way to find out, try. In fact, if you look at the official, as late as February, last February 2022, a couple weeks before the invasion, the Russians were, didn't actually advocate it, but they mentioned Minsk as a possible outcome. So is it possible? We don't know. As long as you insist on not trying, can't find out.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
0: if you're interested in global affairs,
3: you can subscribe to The New Statesman
2: in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds.
0: That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
2: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If the invasion of Ukraine was triggered by Ukraine moving towards NATO, would Russia not have attacked Finland, which has just joined NATO and announced its intention to join NATO about around a year ago, around the time of the invasion of Ukraine?
3: There has never been the slightest indication of any Russian concern about Sweden and Finland. The reasons for Sweden and Finland moving to join NATO have nothing to do with fear of a Russian attack, which has never been even conceived. There's a very simple reason why Finland and Sweden want to join NATO. Sweden and Finland both have quite sophisticated advanced military industries. They've been pretty much integrated into NATO with joint operations and so on. Joining NATO directly gives them great new market opportunities, new access to advanced equipment and so on. But there has never been any indication, except for Western propaganda, about Russian threats to Finland and Sweden. And it's if you think about it, it's just inconceivable. Recall George Orwell's concept of doublethink, the ability to have two contradictory ideas in mind and believe them both. That's NATO right now. On the one hand, they're gloating over the fact that the Russian military is so incompetent that they can't conquer towns 20 kilometers from the border. On the other hand, they're Wailing in fear about the idea that the new Peter the Great is going to conquer Europe. I mean, it's why the whole global south is looking at the US and Britain and collapsing in ridicule. Is there not a difference between
2: Russia's intentions and Russia's capabilities? I mean, its intentions were, I think, quite clearly to conquer most of Ukraine, and its capabilities were somewhat far below. That's that objective.
3: You should certainly look both at intentions and capabilities. Both are clear. The capabilities have become very clear during the failure of the Russian attempts in Ukraine. That's what Western analysts are gloating about, totally incompetent military. That's the capabilities. What are the intentions? We have about 30 years of a documentary record on intentions. The intentions begin with Gorbachev. He had an arrangement, an agreement, a firm, unambiguous agreement with President Bush, First Bush. been a lot of deceit about this, so I suggest you look at the documents, which are available online at the National Security Archive. Unambiguous, clear promise by President Bush that if Gorbachev agreed to allow Germany to be unified and join NATO, which is quite a concession in the light of history, if he agreed to that, NATO would not move one inch to the east of Germany. Firm, explicit, unambiguous promise. Bill Clinton came into the presidency after a year or two, he violated it. He said, We're going to bring in former Russian satellites uh, to the Russian border into NATO. He explained to his friend Yeltsin why he was doing this document. He said to Yeltsin, Don't take it too seriously. I just have to do it for domestic political reasons. I need the Polish vote, I need the Eastern European vote, so we'll carry this meaningless act. Now, the Russians tolerated that. But they made it very clear early on, all of them, that Georgia and Ukraine were red lines right in the Russian geostrategic heartland. No Russian leader. Gorbachev, Yeltsin, anyone would accept them joining a foreign, hostile military alliance. The whole, practically the whole top U.S. Diplomatic Corps with any knowledge of Russia has been warning for 30 years, warning Washington that it is reckless and dangerous to try to cross this red line. Uh, Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William Perry, was so furious he practically resigned when Clinton broke the promise. Fox and Dove. All of them, Robert Gates, the hawkish defense minister of Bush the Two, William Burns, head of the CIA. It's virtually unanimous, warning Washington that this is extremely dangerous. Nobody ever mentioned Finland and Norway because it was never even an issue. The only issue was Ukraine and Georgia. So we know about the intentions. And as I say, we, there's a record right up to the invasion of Russian proposals, which are no NATO membership and some kind of arrangement about the Donbass region. Exactly what? Can only find out with negotiations which the US and British Britain refuse. So that's the we have very good evidence about intentions, have very good evidence about capabilities. We can therefore we have two options. We can draw the rational conclusion, or we can follow the party line as dictated by Washington and London. Those are the choices. You've been clear about your opposition to
2: NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. But nonetheless, NATO membership is very popular among Ukrainians and Georgians. I think polls show overwhelming support for joining. Why is NATO membership so popular among these people, even if, according to you, it's not in the interest of their countries to join?
3: It's not me. It's repeat. The head of the CIA, virtually the entire diplomatic corps, the former head of the CIA, Robert Gates, Paul Nietzsche, Hawks and Doves, have all been saying for 30 years that it is reckless and dangerous to try to cross this clear red line. And you understand that perfectly well. Suppose that Mexico decided to join a Chinese-run international military alliance and to get heavy weapons from China aimed at the United States, move for interoperability of Chinese and Mexican military forces, what do you think the United States would do? We don't have to ask because Mexico would be blown away as soon as the first step towards this began. It's much more serious in the case of Russia. The United States has not been invaded twice in the last century and virtually destroyed through Ukraine.
2: There's a parallel to perhaps what's happening in Ukraine in Taiwan which China has threatened to invade, to reunify by force if necessary. Would it be right for the United States and other Western countries
3: to defend Taiwan in case of an invasion? First of all, let's go back to the facts about Taiwan instead of the American-British propaganda line. What has happened in Taiwan, there has been a an agreement for 50 years. The United States and China agreed back in the 70s on what's called a one-China policy. If you look at the propaganda line now, it says it's a Chinese policy. It's not. It's a Chinese-American policy. You can read the documents, very explicit. The agreement is Taiwan is part of China, and neither side will take measures to disrupt The Peaceful Arrangements, it's called strategic Uh security, held for 50 years, which is pretty good in international affairs. The United States has been severely provoking China. So far, they have reacted only symbolic. Here, that's described as Chinese aggression. But take a look at the facts. Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, went to visit Taiwan, changes the diplomatic status. Now the Kevin McCarthy's doing it. United States Senate Foreign, Relations, Senate Foreign Relations Committee passed a Taiwan Policy Act calling for Taiwan to have the same diplomatic status as any non-NATO member. More weapons applies interoperability of weapons, pretty much the same steps that were taken by the Biden administration on the years prior to the invasion of Ukraine to move towards integrating Ukraine into NATO, even giving them an enhanced program for NATO integration and membership. This is deemed duplicated by the United States and Taiwan. Furthermore, the United States is carrying out a program in official terminology. I'll just give you the official word to encircle China with a ring of sentinel states armed with advanced precision weapons provided by the United States aimed at China. The ring is South Korea, Japan, Australia, American protectorates, Guam, and so on, backed by major naval maneuvers in the Pacific, the RIMPAC maneuvers aimed at China. The United States, for the first time, has established establishing permanent nuclear-capable B-52 bases in Guam and in Australia, one Australia. flight can reach China from there. Britain and the United States providing Australia with nuclear submarines to operate in the South China Sea. All of these are, and in addition to this, the United States has declared what the business press actually accurately calls economic war against China to try to prevent China from developing technologically for a generation, putting great pressure on European, South Korean, Japanese industries to stop providing China with the means to develop its economy. What is the threat of China at this point? The threat is coming from the United States, with, of course, Britain following it. It's just a lackey at this point. It's not an independent country anymore. But the United States and its British lackey are provoking China openly now. Is China a saintly country? Of course, China's violating international law in the South China Sea by fortifying some rocks that are disputed, doing other things, not a nice place. But if you look at the talk about Taiwan, it's coming from the West. Yes, China is, when the United States carries out some provocative act like House Speaker visiting Taiwan, China carried out naval activities, demonstrating that it can blockade Taiwan. It was in reaction to the visit. Another symbolic visits are taking place now. Could it explode? Could yeah. Uh, so far, there's nothing on the Chinese side, but could happen if you keep provoking it. Could explode, so yes, there's a threat of war.
2: Is it ever right for the United States to provide weapons to democracies under threat of invasion by dictatorships
3: like Saudi Arabia, for example, where Britain and the United States are happy to pour arms into the one one of the most harsh dictatorships in the world, which is furthermore carrying out has been carrying out military operations that killed about 350,000 people in Yemen. Yes, Britain and the United States are happy to do that if they can make money from it. All right, Noam Chomsky, thanks so much for
2: your time. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening.